Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Inventory, inflation, purchase apps, existing home sales, recession red flags. We're going to talk about all of this and more on this episode of Housing Wire Daily. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, and my guest is Lead Analyst Logan Motoshami. So you know it's going to be an informative and fun discussion. Let's dive in. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. Sarah, it is great to be here. And by the way, this is going to be a very excited podcast for me because I think it's so much of my economic work is going to be discussed uh, in this interview. Yeah, so we are really focusing this interview on inventory. Um, right. That's top of mind for everybody. And we have some news out this week that directly affects that. So let's dive into the article that you wrote for us last week, um, which was inventory, purchase apps, whatever. So so what's the headline? So if I told you purchase application data is back to 2009 levels, would you think that inventory is skyrocketing because demand is falling apart and, you know, people can't sell their homes? But that's and, the narrative, right? Yeah, that's the narrative. And that's true. Purchase application data is actually back to 2009 levels. Uh, that's why I like to draw those uh, charts with lines kind of correlating to everything else. So the the big difference between now and then let's say what happened in 2002 to 2005 is that we had such a, a big credit boom in America. Home sales were booming. Housing starts were booming. New home sales were booming. They were all on mortgage demand. And in 2005, that peaked. Right. And then from then on, we saw credit getting worse, home sales falling, uh, inventory skyrocketing. And then uh, uh, 2008 and nine came and that was kind of toward the bottom end of the uh, uh, purchase application data. But inventory had been on average over eight months of supply from 2006 to 2011. But now, guess what? Purchase application data is back to 2009 levels. Where's the inventory? Because we just had a 3% mortgage move from the bottom. We have major inflationary issues. Uh, We have a commodities war that's going on right now. And we're barely up year over year working from all-time lows. So this is so much of my work is based upon this. And this is why, you know, I stress, you know, years 2020 to 2024 could be a problem on prices. Prices can escalate out of control and they have. Just because the inventory channels are different than what people think. And in that article, trying to explain that people are staying in their homes longer. Uh, The baby boomers aren't downsizing. Americans love their homes. They spend a lot of money in their homes. They stay there longer. They don't turn over stuff, you know, like, like, like other products. So inventory has been falling since 2014 levels. Slowly, but it has. So if you get a breakout in demand, and I'm not talking like a record breaking boom or anything. Just a couple hundred thousand homes uh, being bought. And that's, to me, in that article showing that really on average, we just had 500,000 more homes bought in a two-year period uh, from 2019 levels. But what that did is broke inventory levels below a level, 1.52 million, where I believe that is not a natural state for housing and it could create forced bidding. And this is what we've seen. 
And this year, purchase application data has been down, and it's unlike last year where we've just had to deal with high comps. This is an authentic first-year decline of purchase application data going back to 2014. And inventory is barely starting to uh, rise on a year-over-year basis. And we are so far from uh, uh, anything kind of normal, but the purchase application data is back to 2009 level. So there's more to this housing dynamic story about inventory and not this, oh, record-breaking demand, home sales are going to fall, inventory is going to skyrocket. We've seen that act. 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Remember last year? Oh, housing is oversupplied by 20%. Inventory is going to... Here it is. We are almost in June, and we are nowhere close to 2020 levels. I mean, I need inventory to just get back to 2018 and 2019 levels, and that... That to me would be just a normal marketplace, even though some people might agree that's that inventory is too low. That to me is normal. So there's more to this story than let's just say the traditional social media outlets that I've talked about. You know, there, there's an oversupply of homes, demand is falling apart, inventory is gonna skyrocket. No. And now we have so much data going back to 1996, which is a lot of my work. Uh, that the only time inventory has really escalated higher uh, was in the 2006 to 2011 period. That was demand weakness and forced credit selling. And that's why those charts and those articles really detail that it was there. You can see it. You can see what was happening in 2005 and 6 and 7, 8. Then after all that drama, the job loss recession happened. So now that we have all this data and we've ran through weakness and demand, we're back to 2009 levels in purchase application data. Where is it? Right. I mean, to, the fact that you said we had eight months of inventory at that time. I mean, that's crazy. What do we have? We have less than a month in some places. We have it is, I know it's yeah. between existing and, and so tell us where we are at with inventory right now. So this goes into a, a another aspect, and and, and I, I've waited so long to write this article, and I needed a I needed one supply spike, and it happened in the new home sales market. So new home sales, the monthly supply data is nine months, and so much of my work, at least on social media, is try to explain to people, mostly to stock traders on Twitter, that the monthly supply data for the new home sales market is not the existing home sales market. And people make this mistake because they go on Fred. Fred is the uh, website that a lot of people get data. And they type in monthly supply and they see, oh, monthly supply was 6.4 months. There's no inventory shortage. And now it's shot up to 9.0, uh, 9 months. Well, guess what? There's another problem with housing. I mean, we have all these issues with housing and it couldn't happen in, in, a, in a worse time. But the month of supply is being dragged on because of the housing completion data. We have a very big problem completing homes. And it's not just the COVID uh, uh, aspect of it. In, in 2018, when mortgage rates got to 5%, the builders kind of paused. For 30 months, the builders kind of paused on construction. And then COVID happened. And so they're just buying uh, uh, land and, and, and selling homes. But out of that nine months of supply, Six months of that are homes that haven't even been started yet. I think about 2.2 months of that is homes that are under construction and like 0.8 months is, is actually homes that are finished. So uh, we wrote that article uh, recently that don't look for the new home sales sector to like be the bastion of supply to come out 
And I see these charts and these, these, these takes on social media that, oh, we have more homes under construction than ever. And, you know, we're just going to, it's not a fluid situation. And you can see it now. You have a nine-month spike, a nine-month supply. People's like, oh, here's the crash. Last time this happened, home prices fell 30%. Completely different. And so we have to have a more sophisticated housing economic discussion that doesn't revolve around what happened from 2002 to 2008. And I think that's the problem I've seen uh, in the last 10 or 11 years. Everybody kind of goes back to the uh, 2008 uh, playbook. And uh, you need the data lines from 2002 to 2005 to even warrant that discussion. And it hasn't been the case. And the new home sales report is a really great example. Six months of the supply hasn't even been started yet. Uh, So and it's going to take forever to finish those homes. And yet now mortgage rates have gone up. So the builders are a little bit more mindful. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We we, we have to manage the cancellations and higher rates and, and stuff like that. So that's part of the issue with the inventory data that you can have purchase application data back to 2009 levels and inventory still well below 2020 levels. You know, I, I think that's one of the most misunderstood things. It was it was shocking to me when I read what you said, because to your point, why does it even count as inventory if it's just like, oh, they started this, but like it's going to take nine months. That shouldn't count because I know as a person who um, we're building a house right now, you go and look at what's out there. There's, there's so, so little out there to choose from. Yes. And I think that's to me, that's that's. That's why people should always separate the new home sales market versus the existing home sale. And it, it, it is so glaringly obvious right now. You have nine months of supply in the new home sales market. You have 2.2 months in the existing home sales market. So it's two different marketplaces. The new home sales market is very small. Uh, it's more predicated to a more wealthier and older home buyer. Uh, it's very driven by mortgage rates, uh, unlike the existing home sales market, which has a, a you know kind of a twenty to twenty five percent cash buyer on trend for twenty twenty two. So when mortgage rates rise, the builder's confidence index you see it it's starting to fall because they're a little bit more mindful of demand. But that does not mean the existing home sales market. And even this year, I see people look. There's nine months of supply. There's no shortage. They are two different worlds, and it's more glaring right now today than any other time in recent modern day history. So uh, hopefully that article really shows that you have to focus on the existing marketplace and you have to focus on total inventory. Wait till we get total inventory back to 1.52 to 1.93. We have to touch that 1.93 and then we're just back to normal. And right now the last existing home sales report was a little bit above a million uh, inventory home price growth per that last report was 14.8% year over year. The Case Shiller index is 20% year over year. This is the problem of having a raw inventory shortage. You have too, too many people looking at too few homes, and it's not because of the credit demand. It's not because we have any data line that looks like 2002 to 2005. And it explains the difference because this is not the stock market. Right. Last year, people said, oh, there's all this overinvestment in housing. And, you know, as soon as rates hit four percent, everyone's going to flood the market and every seven to eight million people are going to sell their homes just to get out. No, that was a stock market. That was technology growth stocks that were trading 70 to 80 percent above their 200 day moving average. And they've collapsed. Right. That was the overinvestment in terms of scale and velocity. And we see that here. And we literally wrote this uh, in October of 2021. Don't worry about 
mortgage rates rising and the stock market correcting, worry about inventory levels facilitating savagely unhealthy home price growth again. And, you know, being part of Team Higher Rates last year, which was not popular and couldn't even get a conversation going with that, but doing it this year because it's a little bit more valid because global yields are rising. We need balance. We desperately need balance because as long as we're below 1.52 million, to me, this is a unnatural state of the housing market and it creates forced bidding, which is not a good thing. Well, and some of the panaceas that we thought, you know, that people were like, oh, this is going to happen. The silver tsunami did not happen. The forbearance crash did not happen. Both of those things would have put more inventory on online, but neither of them happens. In fact, I think delinquency is at an all-time low. Um, we have forbearance dropped. Tell us about that. Yeah, so w- when we th- when we think of the housing crash addicts in America, um, they're mostly what I call anti-central bank people, or they're also like population growth people. Uh, in theory, as civilizations, as soon as it's created, they're over-investing themselves, right? So you're, you're talking to a group of people that are, that are no, forget, that's off the, off, off the grid. The silver tsunami was based on a premise that in 2015, baby boomers in mass would sell their homes and also their stock portfolios. Then they would sell them to a bunch of millennials who couldn't buy. So home prices had to fall 60 to 70%. It was the 10-year decline in, 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 in housing. And the reason they used 2015 as the date is the first baby boomer turned 62 in uh, 2008. So this was uh, 2015 would be the time where everybody was complete disaster, just failed beyond belief. Um, so these are the housing bubble boys 2.0 group. And then 2012 to 2019 didn't go well. So here comes COVID. COVID has to do it, right? So they all kind of jumped in with COVID. That didn't work. So then they moved to forbearance. In 2021, forbearance was supposed to be the big collapse of the U.S. house. That didn't work either. And now we're back to population growth again. So what's old is new again, right? The baby boomers will eventually die off and their homes will go to their children or something in that nature. That's not this period in time. Uh, And there's a reason why I've, I've, I've stopped my work at 2020 to 2024. But uh, this period, you just have a lot of young people and Gen X and and the boomers, they all buy homes every single year and there's just too many of them versus the supply. So it's not a credit boom. And that's why I've always talked about housing. Think of housing as replacement buyers. Don't think of it as a sales boom. When you think of sales boom, you think purchase application data should be going back to 2005 levels. We are so far from even 2002 levels today. That's why we're back in 2009. Well, and let's talk about purchase applications because I know that you've said that this data is actually complicated and most people interpret it differently, you know, wrongly. And so I think that's interesting because to me, purchase application data seems like it should be pretty straightforward. So why, what is the magic with this data? It's a survey trend data. So the percentages... And the, where the headline uh, volumes are, it doesn't necessarily mean where sales are going to be. So a good example was uh, in, in 2014, purchase application data was down 20% year over year. That basically was the worst year over year negative data that we've had for a very long time. But it only amounted to a couple hundred thousand home sales uh, going down. Uh, so there's this base level of 4 million home buyers every single year. Uh, and and the purchase application data is very good on trend data. Uh, and we see that this year, this year is actually going to be the first negative year, year over year, going back to 2014 levels. Now, I had anticipated because home price growth was so much 
2020, 2021, and 2022, that purchase application data would be negative 18 to 22%. That is typically the case when this data line gets really good or really bad. So right now, the four-week moving average is running at 12.5%. Home sales are falling. Uh, we saw that in the pending home sales data, forward-looking purchase applications down. As long as that keeps on continuing, sales will fall. Eventually, you find a base to work off of. Uh, mortgage rates stopped going higher. Uh, it's come down. The 10-year yield made a very weak attempt to try to break over the 2018 levels. Isn't the case. Uh, yields have fallen. There's no QE anymore, right? The whole thing was about when QE ends, the 10-year yield will go to 5, 6, 7, 8%. Uh, because that's where inflation is, didn't happen. So my concern is obviously a little bit different than other people. My concern has always been, and this is why I do these same quotes to other media outlets, I'm more afraid that mortgage rates have peaked. And if it comes back down, you know, we lose some of the balancing factor. And no matter what, we do not want to start 2023 at new fresh all-time loads in inventory. So the fact that we've made some gains is a positive and we just need to hold them. Because if you read inventory channel data right correctly for the past 20 years, you kind of see that you need inventory to increase on a year-over-year basis going to the next year. And if that continues, then you actually get some real inventory growth. That was not the case back in October of 2021. That's why the risk early in 2022 was inventory being down again and creating unhealthy home price growth. So the positive of the housing market in 2022 is rates did rise. It's creating balance. Uh, we're getting some inventory growth. Pricing gets a little bit different. People start to realize they can't push it anymore, right? And that's why I always said higher rates are the only thing that could put home sellers, home builders, and investors on their ass because nothing else was working in this period. And this is a savagely unhealthy housing market. So you need to create some balance while you can. And hopefully rates still high enough to create more balance and go into 2023 with a little bit more positive outlook on getting, trying to get back to a normal housing market and not the madness that we've seen in 2020, 2021, and, and 2022, especially early in 2022. I'm glad you brought up rates. Of course, we always want to talk about rates. And it was just a few weeks ago, uh, really a month ago, that we we're like, the trajectory of rates was so fast. It, it, it rose so fast that I think it really freaked everybody out. I mean, it, it was also just very disruptive and people's workflow if, if you're in the mortgage world. But I, I think what what really was disturbing about that is if it could go rise that fast, how high would it go? Like, was that trajectory going to keep going? Would we see that? But it's really seemed to have found a, a top. I mean, I'm not saying they're not going to go any higher, but it, I mean, we are not on that same really fast trajectory up. You know what? Rates went higher than what they would have normally uh, because the mortgage-backed security market had uh, had to deal with the widespreads, the weakness. But 10-year yield is almost 50 basis points below now where we are in the peak. And it, a lot of my work is when people think that we're going to have a historical change uh, in mortgage rates in the bond market, that means that you're really bullish on the U.S. economy. Like growth is going to take off and inflation is going to take off and people are going to buy homes and and this could be sustained. No, that's not the case. Uh, and, and I sit here right now. We just had the hottest economic growth in decades. We had the most sizzling inflation data, which starting to look like the rate of growth is peaking out. We have a commodities war out there right now that's creating uh, uh, lots of problems. And the 10-year yield today, uh, as we speak on this Friday, is 2.72%. So you threw everything at it, but the trend is your friend. It's not just a trend from 1981. It's the trend going back to the 1300s. 
right? Um, were, were you keeping charts back in the 1300s? Like, where are these charts? I have charts. I literally show people charts going back to the 1300s. The trend has been your friend. So to have like, you know, people use these charts and they say, oh, the long-term trend has been broken out. You have to look back and think, what will it take for rates and inflation? To keep? It's going to take unbelievable economic growth to be sustained for a very long time. Uh, and that'll drive you there. And again, we are almost in June and the economic rate of growth has already peaked. Some of the economic data is getting weaker. You know, that's some of the talking points that we've had early on that how can you get the 10-year yield to get to five, six, seven, eight percent in eight to nine when economic data is getting weaker? There's a lot of people that say, well, the oil inflation will keep the Federal Reserve uh, uh, it, it, and bond markets uh, are rising much more. This would be a supply issue. This is not because demand is so uh, booming. Demand is obviously uh, much better now than it was during the COVID-19 loans. But for the Federal Reserve to try to tamp down oil prices, they need 10 to 20 million people to lose their job to stop driving, right? Because the, the supply issue is different than the demand issue. Millions of people drive their cars all the time now, right? There's no more COVID-19 uh, barriers anymore. So there's different dynamics, but if you are a high bond yield, high inflation, high mortgage rate person, you really are economically so bullish on the U.S. And quantitative and easy ended, and we were, we did this so many times in the last 12 years. People assumed that when that ended, the 10-year yield would skyrocket because there's no demand for our bonds or anything. And here it is again, it failed right? Because we threw everything you could possibly have at this bond market. And today it's at 2.72%. So technically speaking, for all the chart nerds out there, you can see the head and shoulders being formed on the 10-year yield. So it's going to be really interesting for the next month. Uh, if it breaks, boy, you got a lot of ways to go lower on the 10-year yield and mortgage rates will follow it. So an interesting uh, storyline for the, for the rest of the year. But uh, they threw everything they had at it. And we couldn't even break over 2018 levels. An economic rate of growth is slowing. And the rate of growth of inflation, you know, I mean, outside of energy and food costs, some of this stuff is, has limits, especially rent inflation has limits. Wage growth is picking up, of course, but the dynamics behind low bond yields, Germany is not a fast-growing economy. Japan's not a fast-growing economy anymore. The U.S. is not a fast-growing economy. Population growth is slowing. So I, it's hard for me to be that bullish on the United States to warrant bond yields and inflation and people spending like crazy and just not the case. It's really funny that um, those things work would have to work in concert. The same people who are saying, I know by saying, oh, you must be really bullish on the economy. You're poking them a little bit because these are the very people who are like, you know, we're about to crash. Everything's going to go bad. It's seven to eight years dealing with the same price. Boy, you, I always tell them, you're like 10, 11% mortgage rates, bond yields that high. You're really, really bullish on the US. You know, that's that's a lot of economic growth. And they'll go, no, it's QE. It's a, and, and, and honestly, some of the charts I've been putting up recently, I was born in 1975. I have the 10 year yield chart and mortgage rate charts from 1975. They move exactly together, right? Uh, uh, and, and nothing has changed, right? So um, we had we had strong economic growth back in, in in the 70s, but I just don't think we're that kind of economy. And the notion that the entire uh, the world is revolved around QE and the Federal Reserve, that if the Federal Reserve stopped QE, the entire world would change. It did, right? And guess what happened? The 10-year-old couldn't even break over 2018 levels, right? So trend is your friend. If you are that bullish on the U.S. economy, bless your heart, okay? 
I'm not part of that group. I don't, I don't believe in that premise, but here it is, another evidence right now. Um, uh, and if that chart, if that head and shoulders breaks, that bond yield goes down, mortgage rate's gonna go down with it. And of course, my concern is that, boy, that we just had this really nice balancing factor and it was working, right? It's, of course, inventory's not skyrocketing, but it's working. We're starting to get pricing. Why? Because mortgage buyers are the biggest buyers out there in America. It's not BlackRock, Blackstone, or investors or whatever. It's mortgage buyers, millennials, right? How do you check that? Uh, the rate of growth of pricing is, again, mortgage rates. So let's talk about, you know, you've been talking about, hey, things are slowing down. Here's we're doing that. That reminds me of your recession red flags and what we might want to talk about there, because we did have something happen last week. So we're recording this on Friday. So it's this week. But by the time we listen to this, it'll be last week. So tell us what happened last week. Well, in theory, if... Um Monthly supply spiked like it has in the new home sales market, and uh, the HMI, the builder's confidence, is fading, which I think the builder's confidence is the best survey confidence we have in America. The Michigan confidence has collapsed to below COVID levels and everything, and people are still spending. So that isn't a very efficient uh, uh, survey to work off. But the HMI data is starting to fall. If new home sales fall and you see a monthly supply spike, I technically would raise the fifth recession red flag. It's just that the the supply data is being tainted by the construction data. So the builders are at a business model risk with mortgage rates. We wrote that in March, right? What happened in March? The 10-year yield broke about 1.94%. What's been our talking point since the summer of 2020? The housing market will change once the 10-year yield breaks over 1.94%. So that's something to keep an eye on going out in the future, cancellations, everything, but it's not like what it was uh, uh, in 2005 and eight, where you saw this massive spike uh, in monthly supply and you saw this 82% crash in new home sales, right? You know where new home sales are right now? The last print, it's a seasonal print, monthly print. So they're back to 1996 levels, right? That's There's no credit boom. There's no record-breaking demand. We're back there. So uh, these these numbers get uh, adjusted, revised. So most likely it's, this number gets revised maybe a little bit higher going out. But there's your issue, right? If you had record-breaking demand, then you had all these homes that were that need to be sold, and delinquencies, foreclosures. None of that is here, right? So it's a every cycle has its own kind of dynamics, and you just can't live off of 2008. And the sad part is, people use 2008. No, it was 2005. Housing peaked in 2005. They keep on using the wrong year. They don't even know how to use the right year. You know, look at. You get upset about 2008 versus 2005 the way that, you know, I get upset about some grammar things where I'm like, no, people, you need to at least be accurate in this, right? But it gets you every time when you're like, it's not even 2008. It's not even, I mean, I there's the problem. The, the, the crazy people don't even know what year it was. And they've been saying it for 13 years, 2008, 2000, no, it was 2005. The data actually showed the economy getting weak. All my recession red flags were up in 2006. You can model this stuff out if you read. And what do these people do? They don't believe in reading. <laughs> reading is a good thing, right? It's a, good thing. It's a positive thing. So I want you to break it down for me. Like we've talked about a lot of things, but you know, we talked about you could raise your uh, the fifth out of six recession red flags, but but give me sort of that that whole explain it to me like I'm ten. Maybe with economics, explain it to me like I'm five. And to our audience, even though they're very smart. Are we headed into a recession this summer? What does that look like? Tell us what you think. Okay, so the fifth and sixth recession red flags are not raised yet, but you could kind of start to look at the leading economic index 
some of the data lines, manufacturing, housing permits, credit, the credits, some of the credit data is starting to deteriorate. You can start to look at this index falling over for the next six months. Not now. A lot of people put too much weight on the negative Q1 GDP. That's a lot of that was export data. So you want to keep an eye on certain data lines at this point, but you don't want to use the R word until the data trends start to fall. Because the last expansion every day we were going into recession. It was the longest economic and job expansion ever recorded in history. It was a disaster for the American bears. And the same people who are bearish today were the same people that are bearish in 2020 were the same people who were bearish from 2009 all the way. They won't change. But economics, numbers, numbers are the closest thing we have to the handwriting of God. Let the data guide you. So we want to look at manufacturing data. We want to look at uh, trucking data. We want to look at consumption data. The Durable goods sector, which actually had a, a, a decent report this last week, that cannot be sustained. But again, people are spending, right? So as long as people are spending and employed, it's really hard to have a recession, right? So you need to look at the overinvestment areas, uh, the Pelotons of the world. Those things are getting crushed, right? Because they built too much. They don't have that kind of demand. But the service sector of the inflation is picking up trips. Oh my God, I've been flying everywhere. All first classes are booked every trip I've been to. So, you know, people are spending on other things. It offsets some of the durable goods weakness. So follow those data lines when leading economic index falls, as credit gets worse, you know, housing permits are start to, or probably most likely start to fade. Those things will work together. So that's where you need to keep an eye on going out uh, for the next six months. But the super growth that, you know, some people believe in that rates have to go because we're, we're a fast growing car. No, that's over. Right, uh, personal savings rate is falling back down. Disposable income is still rising, but real wages are down. So there's limits to what the U.S. economy can do. But again, our strength has always been not only king dollar, but it's also uh, our demographics. We have a lot of young people, young replacement workers. Not you know a booming economy in terms of population growth. Extent. Birth rates are up. Right, we've had a first positive year uh, in, uh, in in a while. Guess what? Weddings, 40-year highs, right? Why? Because young people, they have sex and they get married and they have kids. There's nothing wrong with them. They're just like the baby boomers. They just do things a little bit later in life. So that is a positive. That's household formation economics. And it's right on target right online because people get married a little bit later in life. So 2052 is going to be another booming year for housing. Let's get on a podcast. Let's mark that down. 2052, we'll get back on here and talk about how uh, how inventory is low. Uh, Logan, it's always a pleasure. Um, what are you looking for uh, the first week of June? So uh, the jobs report, um, uh, this gets a little bit more interesting because some of the sectors that overinvested uh, are already telling, hey, we don't need that many people working here. So you see a little bit of increase in jobless claims, but job openings are still very high. So the jobs data becomes more interesting now because there are certain segments of the economy that simply have too many people working. That's not that's not going to be the case. They'll adjust. Uh, and then uh, job openings are still high enough where these people can find labor. So at some point, the job market, labor market does turn, but we're starting to see older people start to come back into the workforce. Uh, so some of the jobs data should get back to, remember the whole thing was by September of 2022, we should have all the jobs back. We're slowly getting our way there and we might be able to hit the target right on the month. Uh, uh, and that looks perfectly normal to me. But again, Population growth is slowing. The baby boomers are leaving. They need to be replaced. There's parts of the U.S. that doesn't have too much population growth for young people, so it's harder for them to find labor. Uh, so we people are moving around the country. It's a positive, you know, uh, finding cheaper homes with a 
But the worst part of everything is home price accelerated well beyond trend. That's a negative, not a positive. And so much there to unpack. Really happy that we have you to help explain it to us, our audience. Um, I would say that if people want to see you in person, you are doing more, more of those. You're going to be speaking at the Gathering of Eagles event, which is put on by Real Trends. Um, from June 26th to June 29th, you're going to do a special lunch session where you're going to go through some things and people can ask you questions. So if people are interested in that, look at uh, Gathering of Eagles, Real Trends, and, and sign up. Um, but always, Logan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, great. A lot of fun this time. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.